Today we are on our next to the last message about the 12. We are going to talk about Judas, the traitor. Um, I, I preached, oh, I guess the last time I preached a series on the 12 was, I don't know, probably nearly uh, 26, 27 years ago. I mean, it was at another church. And when I preached a message, it wasn't this message, but when I preached a message about Judas, um, a couple of people came to me really offended. And uh, I'm not saying this because I think you'll be offended. I'm just trying to put the message in context for you. They said Judas was a traitor and what, possibly, uh, what possible lesson can we learn from his life? And I said, well, praise God on all of the other disciples, the lesson was positive. I said, but there is a place for negative lessons as well. I'm just so thankful that of the 12, there's only one that we draw a negative lesson from. A man who was uh, administrator or uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? President of uh, a Bible college put together a, a, a monument of the 12 apostles. And many were surprised when he included Judas in the 12. And he was questioned about it. And one of the things that I heard him say was every time our students walk across campus, I want them to do an examination of their heart. I want them to see the lessons of the 11. And I want them to see the warning of the 12. So that's what we're doing today when we talk about Judas. Um, in, uh, we don't do it here in America, but in many uh, Central and South American countries and, and in Mexico, they have Judas Saturday. And that sounds like some old bus ministry event from decades ago. But what Judas Saturday is, is the Saturday usually, and, and the dates vary from place to place, but usually the Saturday before Easter, and the object of everything that goes on in that culture is to just beat the snot out of Judas. Judas is put up in effigy all over town, and he's burned, he's hanged, he's flogged, they explode him, and uh, they just want to show jo Judas they're not going to put up with anybody that does Jesus wrong. Now, I'm afraid some of the things I've seen aren't so much about teaching Judas a lesson as it is just blowing things up. But I, I, I'm glad we don't have a Judas Saturday because I want us to remember that um, it's not our job to be critical of those who have rejected Jesus. It's not our job to be critical of those of us who have accepted Jesus, who stumble along the way. That's what Paul told us in Galatians 6. There are some Jewish uh, uh, traditions as well that celebrate during the Feast of Purim, the, the hanging of Haman and his ten son, sons, and they're hung in effigy. And um, while I, while I want to say thank you for your sentiment toward God, I, I want us to also understand when we approach Judas, it's not the time for us to point the finger and say he's the bad one, as if to say we're the good one. I, I think it's healthy when we look at the 12 disciples and when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, the amazing thing is that every single one of them took those words seriously enough to say, Lord, is it I? Is it I? I know that we are secure in him and I know that we love him. We may feel so strongly about him. We make boasts and say, though everyone denies you, I would never deny you. But Judas teaches us and the example of the other 11 teaches us that we never take for granted our devotion to the Lord. Because if we're not, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that our faith is weak or our devotion is not real. I'm saying you never know what can happen when the situations line up in a certain way. So we approach someone's failure with humility. So we're going to do that with Judas today, but I want us to, to notice some important lessons. Um, here's the central lesson of his life. It is possible to spend time in the presence of Jesus only to develop a hardened heart, a clouded mind, 
and a damned soul. I think we ought to focus on the security that we have in the Lord. I think we ought to focus on the wonderful journey that we're taking to heaven. But I think every now and then, every Bible-believing church needs to ask everyone from the pastor right on through the congregation, are you living what you say you believe? Are you really um, following the Lord yourself? Or are you holding on to somebody's coattails? We had a lady in my home church. She, every time we'd have testimony service, she'd end it by saying, y'all pray for me that I'll be ready for the rapture, even if I have to grab onto somebody's coattail. And, uh, you know, at first it was the adults would chuckle and then they got quiet. And before long, the pastor needed to correct her. He, he said, if we need to hold on to somebody's coattails, we ain't going in the rapture. Coattails be left behind. So let's look at what the scripture tells us about, um, uh, about Judas. We're going to look at Matthew 26, first of all. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. As they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And this is so admirable of the disciples. Instead of being arrogant, they said, the word said, being deeply grieved, deeply grieved. Grieved is a love word. You, 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 um, you can get mad at a car. We've done that. I mean, am I the only one? We can get mad at a car. We can get mad at somebody on the news. We can get mad at circumstances, but I don't get grieved at a car. I don't get grieved at somebody on the news. Grieve is a love word. It's, it's based on a love relationship. And that's why it's easy for husbands and wives to not just get mad with each other, but to be grieved with each other. Parents with their children to grieve over something that child has done. We, we, we may pay respects to those we don't know who have gone by way of the grave, but those we love, we grieve for them. We mourn for them. And that's why the scripture says, because of our love for him, we must be careful to not grieve the Holy Spirit. But they were grieved deeply and said, surely not I, Lord. And he answered, um, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Now, when we put the whole gospel story together, uh, John is, is reclining right next to Jesus. And it's apparently John that Jesus says this to, the one who is about to dip his hand in the bowl with me. And with that, Jesus extends the bowl and Judas dips. The son of man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Such serious words. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas who was betraying him. That, that's a, a, a word that says he was in the very act of betraying him. The action was being played out at that moment. Said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Um, King James says, thou hast said it. What it means in our vernacular, it was like Jesus looked him in the eye and said, Judas, you know it's you. You know what's going on in your heart. You know what's going on right now. So this was a very sobering, very serious, very dramatic moment. Now, again, let me repeat the lesson. It's possible to spend time in the presence of Jesus only to develop a hardened heart, a clouded mind, and a damned soul. And interest in Jesus and his kingdom is not enough. Now, I, when I say this, I don't mean to imply that in your walk with the Lord, you can do the best that you can and it just not be enough. I used to have such a fear of getting to heavenly gates and Peter looking at my record and saying, close, but no cigar. You did good on most days, but you had some bad days. And as before, I began to understand the nature of this wonderful thing called mercy and grace. I wasn't worthy to go to heaven before I was a Christian, and I'm not worthy to go to heaven after I'm a Christian. It's because of him that we go to heaven. So I don't worry about getting there and, and St. Peter saying close but no cigar. 
That's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. But I'm telling you this, it is very, very possible for people to come to church because it's part of their social duty or because it looks good on their resume. I'm, I'm amazed at how many people when they're running for president or running for whatever office, they, they put a great amount of stock in and I'm a member of this church. I mean, you go all the way back, almost every, Christ, uh, every uh, president has said, yes, I'm a member of this church. But so many times when you investigate it, there's no evidence of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's just until recently to get elected in, in middle America, you had to have a church affiliation. It was part of the job description, but it didn't mean they were Christians. It didn't mean there was anything redemptive about their life. Sometimes they do it just to make their spouse happy, or sometimes they do it just for whatever benefit there is. But I said something years ago, I want to repeat today, God, and I want to say this in particular to the children that were raised in this church. Some of you are teenagers and young adults. Now you say, pastor, I've been in this church all my life. I remember you from the earliest days of my life. Somebody the other day said, pastor, you dedicated me and now you're dedicating my children. And I thought, oh, that's just so wonderful. And it was, and that person's really following the Lord. And I'm so proud. But can I tell you this? God has no grandchildren. You are not going to heaven because mom and dad are going to heaven. You're not right with God because you've been raised in a church that's a good church that points to Jesus. Spending time in the presence of the Lord is beneficial to us only when we open our heart to Him. Because if you refuse to open your heart to the Lord, the danger is a hardened heart. Because let me say this to us all, loved ones, every time we hear the truth, that's a dangerous thing. You know it's a dangerous thing to come to a church like this? You say, oh, wait, wait a minute, are we receiving another offering? What do you mean it's dangerous to come to a church like this? Because every time you hear the truth, you don't just hear the truth, you become responsible for that truth. That truth is presented before you, and I must accept that truth, and to not accept that truth is to reject the truth. I've known people through the years that say, well, I haven't decided for Jesus yet. And I tell you, yes, you have. And your decision is no. And we need to understand that there's the danger of a hardened heart. And another reason it's dangerous is because you can hear truth, but... 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us that if you don't receive the truth, you're given over to a reprobate mind, that you believe a lie and are damned. And that's where we get the phrase, excuse me, the phrase, the damned soul. Now, let's talk about the background of Judas for a minute. Though Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas Iscariot was a traitor, we we know that from John's writings, Jesus knew it from the beginning. He was included in every apostolic list except the one in Acts chapter 1. Now, um, on on the other hand, every mention of Judas, unless I missed one, uh, when it's talking about Judas, unless it's just purely describing his actions, every mention of Judas points him out as the one who betrayed the Lord. When they give the list of disciples, there was Peter, James, John, Matthew, he goes on down the list, and Judas who betrayed him. Or Judas who was the traitor. It's a serious thing in the gospel account what Judas did. The betrayal of Jesus. In fact, if you've ever read uh, The Divine Comedy by Dante, uh, most of us rather, you know, watch Magnum or something than read, you know, ancient Italian literature. But if you've read The Divine Comedy, the first part of it is called The Inferno. And as you work through The Inferno, um, hell is divided into nine concentric circles. Um, And in the ninth concentric circle, the darkest place of hell, the most demonically tortuous place of hell, the place where Satan dwells is the ninth circle of hell, which is reserved for those who betray friends unjustly. That's where Satan is. And the most notable resident of the ninth circle of hell in Dante's Inferno is Judas Iscariot. 
Those that, um, and, and remember it was written from a Catholic tradition, those that were just undecided were in the first ring of hell. And they even had a chance of redemption through the teaching of purgatory. But the deeper you go, the deeper your sin. And Dante said, uh, what we learned from Satan and what we learned from Judas is that there's nothing worse than betraying those who are innocent. Nothing worse than betraying those who are innocent. And that's what Judas did. Now, as I said, Judas's life is being reviewed not as an encouragement, but as a warning. We don't know a lot about him, but he is different from every one of the other disciples. Um, we know his father's name was Simon. His name, Ju uh, Judas, was a form of Judah, which means God leads him or God directs him. His surname, Iscariot, tells us where he's from. He's uh, Ishkarioth, or the man from Kerioth. It, in, in our language, it would be like calling Roy, Roy from Columbia, you know, Roy Columbia. It just was his name and where he's from. Judas was such a common name, it was his distinguishing title. I'm the Judas from, um, from Kerioth. Um, it's interesting here, you see in your notes, he was the only apostle not from Galilee and was a virtual stranger to the group. Now, the Galileans were country folks. I preached this a few years ago at a little country church I pastored, and uh, a fellow came up to me afterwards and he said, so you're saying all the good disciples of Jesus are us rednecks? And I said, that's not a scriptural application I'm trying to make at all. I said, if it'll help you serve him better, then that's fine. Go with it. But all of them were country boys except Judas, who was from southern Judah. The other guys were all from the north. He was the only one, as I said, not from Galilee. And the thing about the other 11 disciples, many of them knew each other. There were two possibly three sets of brothers in it. They worked in the same area. Most of them uh, were either knew each other from the region or had been disciples of John the Baptist. And Jesus' selection of Judas brings somebody in from the outside. So it would have been easy for him to hide his hypocrisy from the group, from everyone except Jesus. He lived the lie well. When Jesus announced that one of the twelve would betray him, nobody in the room pointed a finger at Judas and said, oh, we know who it is. It's the southerner over here. It's the city boy over here. And Kerioth was not exactly a city, that's for sure. Nobody suspected Judas. They rightly turned their suspicions inward. Could I do such a thing? So since we don't know a lot about Judas, even the disciples didn't know a lot about him, we know that he had phenomenal ability because he became the treasurer of the group. I mean, he had to have the respect and the trust of the group in order to be in charge of the money. But let's look at what we do know about Judas from the story in the Gospels. There are, there are five things I want to just touch on quickly this morning. Um, first of all, I have to say this. It's letter A on your outline under Roman numeral 2. We may never satisfactorily answer the question of whether Judas was a genuine disciple or not. The, the, the church of Jesus is divided uh, and strongly divided. Some say he was never saved because they say you can never be saved and be lost. And another part of the church says, yes, you can. You can walk away from your devotion to the Lord. And I want to be honest with you. You can make a pretty strong case for both, both views, depending on where you start. You can make a case that Judas was never saved, but you can also make a case that it appears that he was. We don't understand all the dynamics of it. And you can throw it out to a philosophical, well, it's just God's sovereign choice. And God does have sovereign choices, but I'm not here to argue Calvinism versus Arminianism. I think sometimes the most difficult questions in theology, we try to answer by philosophy and it can't be done. So we may, I mean, I could talk the rest of the day on this one point. And we will not come probably any closer to resolving the issue of was he a, 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 a serious disciple, a genuinely born again disciple or not. You can make a good case, as I said, for both views. We do know this. We know that he chose Jesus and we know Jesus chose him. Um, we, we, we know that there were times that he was considered, I mean, plenty of times he was considered one of the 12 
uh, by Jesus giving them commands. When Jesus talked about being betrayed, he quoted a psalm that, said, that was speaking, uh, he said, prophetically of Judas. And in the psalm, he said, it was my friend with whom I enjoyed sweet fellowship in the congregation of the Lord together. Jesus seemed to indicate the, the great treachery of Judas was that there was something genuine about his life. At least it tends to lead that way. On the other hand, again, he stayed with Jesus when many other disciples were leaving him. But then on the other hand, I think I've got three hands now, but on the other hand, we know that his motivation was driven at least in part by greed and selfishness. So we look at this man, he's a conflicted soul. So the, the, we often get stuck at whether Judas was a real disciple or not. It really doesn't matter for this study because that's the way it is in church. We don't always know if someone is in the altars because they got caught or if they're in the altars because they repented. We never know, with, except for the passing of time. You guys with me here? We never know if someone wants relief or release. A lot of times I've prayed with people, and it's obvious they don't want release from their sin. They want relief from some of the consequences of sin. And uh, they, they pray, and we lead them in the sinner's prayer when they're not ready to pray the sinner's prayer because re- repentance is not really a part of their life. Um, either way, this matter was foreseen and part of God's plan. And we have some scriptures there. Uh, so, so, so the point is, we, we don't need to answer the question, was Judas a sincere believer or was he not? The, the, the part we need to grasp is that he was in the group. And we need to understand that if Jesus had that in his very small group of 12, we all need to be aware of the danger of us in a big group like this, having that same propensity in our own heart. Now, I'm not talking about someone struggling with sin. I'm not talking about someone struggling to overcome. I'm talking about someone who was a hypocrite. At least it appeared that way. The second thing that we observe is, um, which is a, ought to be a warning sign for every one of us, Judas didn't understand true worship. A, a person may have gone through membership class. A person may be a regular tither. But be careful. I've, and I've been there, loved ones. Be careful when you start casting judgment on someone else's style of worship or their actions of worship. Or their, or their behavior during worship. Because one of the real red flags that surfaced in Judas's life is that he was in the midst of some of the most extravagant, beautiful worship imaginable. And he didn't even recognize it as worship. The extravagant worship of Mary was disregarded by Judas as improper and frivolous. And he criticized her worship. And what did Jesus say? He said, why are you bothering this woman? You have no idea what she's doing. Loved one's a wise man, a wise woman. I must be killing y'all today. You're so quiet. But, but um, a wise man or a wise woman is very, very cautious and very, very slow to criticize someone else's worship because sometimes something is happening that we have no idea what's going on. I had a pastor friend that told us this story. He said, I have seen all the Pentecostal abuse. And he said, there was a woman that was just speaking in tongues, disrupting service. It was after a song and she just kept speaking in tongues and disrupting service. And He said, I'd never seen her before. And she's just crying out the same phrase over and over and over and just disrupted. And I stopped and gave her a lecture about order in worship and order uh, that this isn't true Pentecost. So quit your, quit your giving a message in tongues and interrupting the rest of the service. And she just kept going. And then someone came up to her and, and said, um, Pastor, I've just returned from a tour of duty in the Philippines. This woman is not praying in tongues. She's crying out, Lord Jesus, if you are there, help me. If God is real, 
help me. And she had come to a church. Her life was falling apart. And she had done what every sinner ought to do. She was calling out to God for mercy. And this pastor said, I didn't even have a clue what was going on. I thought she was trying to give a message in tongues when what she was doing was praying in her native tongue, Jesus, help me. And none of us had the sensibility to help her. And then this serviceman got somebody and they did help her. But we got to be careful. You know, you say, yeah, but that doesn't happen often. I don't know. You remember Hannah? We talked about her on, in our last, uh, or, or a couple of studies back in our Mothers of Israel. Hannah was, was praying to the Lord, pouring out her soul. And Eli the priest, because she was praying silently, the priest, the high priest, looked at her and said, get out of here, woman, with your drunkenness. Don't you know better than to come to church being intoxicated? And even the pastor didn't understand what was going on in this woman's life. And we know what was going on in Eli's life. Uh, Eli, Judas, hey, let's be careful that we don't judge extravagant worship. Here's a third thing I see about Judas in the scriptures. It became very evident, uh, evident, evident, that's a beautiful word, <laughs> became very evident that he was focused on his own welfare. No, I'm kidding. Welfare. He was focused on his own welfare. Um, when he betrays Jesus, this is the heart of the matter. What will you give to me if I will betray him? Now, we don't know what was going on in his mind. Maybe he was serving Jesus, thinking Jesus was going to establish the kingdom. And as one of the 12, he would be set in a position of prominence to be rewarded financially. He had seen Jesus, if you read the Gospels, more than one occasion, Jesus escaped a death trap more than once as he followed the leading of the Father. Maybe he thought, I can betray him and get the money and Jesus will get away. He always gets away. I don't know. But at the heart of the matter was, what can I get out of of doing this. Now, now listen, this is in your notes also under letter C. John chapter 12, whenever this perfume was poured out on Jesus, and it was an extravagant gift, it was well over a year's worth of wages. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now that sounds marvelous. Sounds like the kind of person that might be chosen for a finance committee position. But John editorialized with this. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor. He said this because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. See... Even, even, even money that was given for the work of Jesus, he would pilfer it and would take it and use it for his own purposes. Here's the fourth thing. Um, not only was he um, focused on his own welfare, but it seems he knew nothing of self-examination. Paul said in, in the Living Bible, it reads this way, keep a constant critical look on yourself. Now, Paul wasn't saying blast yourself or tell yourself lies or refuse to acknowledge your real value to the Lord. Just, just be a poor mouth kind of individual. He wasn't saying that. He was saying this thing is so deceiving. The trick of the enemy is so deceiving. He said just keep guard on your heart. Be sure that you examine your motives. That can be unhealthy. But Paul wasn't advising us to be unhealthy. He was saying just keep watching your heart. Because as Jeremiah said, the human heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. And who can know it? So we have to keep that examination going. But we find with the other disciples, to their credit, they're open to this idea of correction by Jesus. You know, you can tell how mature a person is by how closely their lifestyle measures up to what they say they believe. And you can tell how well they're growing by how quick they are to receive valid correction. And when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, every one of them, including Judas, said, Lord, is it I? And this is the amazing part of that story. When he said, Lord, surely it's not 
I that's doing this. Jesus, as we said earlier, looked at him and said, Judas, you know it's you. You know what's going on in your heart right now. It was as though he were saying, everybody else may be buffaloed by you, but I know what's happening. And that's, that's amazing that the Lord knew that. But you know what's more amazing? Is that Judas did not even respond to the loving correction of the Lord. In fact, it got to the point he was so quiet after being exposed that Jesus looked at him and, and in a sense of resignation, he said, Judas, if you're going to do this, you need to hurry. And he turned and did it. He had no understanding of self-examination. Here's the last thing I see about him. He chose to live in a response of offense. Scripture says there's a great blessing on the person that is never offended. But when we are offended, we take issue with the way things happen. We take issue with the way God works. I was reading in my devotion this morning, the disciples of John heard Jesus teaching and they said, uh, John was in prison. He said, the, the, the disciples said, our master has sent us to ask you, are you the one we look for or should we look for another? Now, John and Jesus grew up together. They knew each other. John knew this was the disciple or the, uh, the Messiah. I'm sorry. But John was so discouraged being in prison it was as though John said in the, that dark night of the soul, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I don't understand what I thought I understood. Go to Jesus and just ask him, have I interpreted this correctly? Or is there someone else we look for? And Jesus said, go tell John what you've seen. And it was direct from the Old Testament. And then Jesus adds a sentence. You know what it was? He said, and tell John this. Blessed is the one that is not offended with me. What he was saying is tell John, yes, tell him what you've seen. And tell him, John, there's a blessing if you can take this in without being offended at the way I'm working. John didn't expect to end up in prison. John didn't expect Jesus to have the persecution and the opposition that he had. He thought, maybe I missed it. But Jesus was saying, John, don't let things you don't understand. Don't let things that, quite frankly, you don't like, John. Don't let them cause you to begin to live in a state of offense. Keep believing what you know is true. See, I know this about Judas. He was disappointed in Jesus' message. It became evident in his questioning that he wanted the overthrow of Rome and that was not part of Jesus' immediate ministry. Uh, you see, perhaps one of the toughest things that the disciples had to deal with is that Messiah had come to reestablish the kingdom. But Rome is not less powerful when Jesus is about to die. In fact, he, Rome is probably more powerful. They are in the next 40 years about to reach the peak of their power. And it didn't look like Messiah was overthrowing the occupying force like the prophet said he would. But Jesus was teaching them. And that was a big deal. Even when Jesus is resurrected, they get it and is about to go to heaven. And they, they, they gather around. You can see them talking in a little group. And then they say, so is it now that the Father's going to restore the kingdom to us? And Jesus says, that's not what you're concerned about right now. You spread the gospel because Jesus needed to tell them and had to have them understand. And it becomes more and more clear as we get to the Old uh, New Testament into the book of Revelation. Things will not be fully set in order, nor will rewards be received until the age to come. So Jesus threw him a curveball with his message, or at least the timing of the message. And Judas didn't like it. He didn't like Jesus' message, and he was disappointed in Jesus' methods. Why this waste? Why didn't we take this money and sell it? If it's a year's wages, let's say $50,000, that's a lot of silver, and nobody will notice if I pocket 10% of it. He did not like the way Jesus was doing things. But loved ones, let me explain this. And we Christians, all of us need to be reminded of this from time to time. What Paul said about the message of the gospel is this. It is offensive to the natural mind. 
He said the message of the cross is foolishness to the Gentile mind. The Gentile mind says if Jesus really wants to show himself God, why does he allow himself to be killed? The Jewish mind finds the message of the cross a stumbling block. And what that means is they just get tripped up over it. It doesn't make sense. He's Messiah. How can God die on the cross? How can our Heavenly Father die on the cross? So it offends the Gentile mind. It confuses the Jewish mind. And Judas played right into the trap of both. He resented Jesus' message, and he resented Jesus' methods. Now, we have to touch on this before we begin to wrap this up today. Um, we have to talk about the betrayal of Jesus by Judas and the death of Judas. Boy, there's a couple of sermons we could get out of this, but time doesn't permit today. The betrayal was planned and premeditated. This was, there was a point in the last few months of Jesus' ministry that Judas saw where this was going. He saw that when the Pharisees and the Sadducees, see the Pharisees and Sadducees hated each other and they both hated Jesus. But near the end of Jesus' life, the last four to six months, they realized we've got to join forces. And when they joined forces, at least in the natural, that was the beginning of the end. The two most powerful, the religious power of the nation, the political power of the nation. It now, they now joined forces. And Judas says, well, Jesus might could have escaped one group. He might, he might have used one group against the other, you know, like Paul would do later when he goes back to Jerusalem. He's assaulted by the believers and the non-believers and the resurrection. So he, so he plays the resurrection card. And gets the crowd fighting against themselves and, and he gets safely taken to jail. But Judas said he can't, he can't escape anymore. This is the beginning of the end. And the Bible says uh, just a few months out that at that time Judas began to plot how he could destroy Jesus. And how he could deny him. So it was planned. It was premeditated. And as Jesus is praying in the garden, um, those of us that went to Israel this last year, we were able to spend an hour of prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. And I don't know of a single person. That might not be their favorite place. But everybody was impacted by the solemnity, by what was going on in that garden so many centuries ago. And as Jesus was praying with the disciples, they were all there praying. He drew three of them close to him because they were those that seemed to be closest to him. They were unable to stay awake. Their trauma, you know, I, 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 that's why I know today is such a difficult day. All of that turkey you ate and, and, and you're so tired. You know, I, I want to say, could you not listen for one hour? But <laughs> Jesus had the same problem with the disciples. They were worn out. They were exhausted from Holy Week. And, and it's a testimony to the love of Jesus that he is, he is pursuing God with such fervency that his sweat was like great drops of blood. Uh, love is what drives a person to that kind of energy. The rest of us would have done what the disciples did. In fact, one of our group fell asleep during the hour prayer of the garden and we just teased him in, in, in incessantly, you know, you're in good company. You're with the rest of the disciples. You fell asleep, right? But as they were praying, about 600 soldiers from the Antonia Fortress, along with temple police and officials, came to arrest Jesus. It was dark. It was going to be by torchlight. So Judas said, I'll give you the clue. The one that I kiss, the one that I greet with a kiss is Jesus. And when he kissed Jesus, Jesus didn't reject him. Jesus didn't, didn't rebuke him. See, that's what's so dangerous about being in the presence of Jesus without taking the presence of Jesus seriously. God still pours his blessing on you. You still like the worship. You still like this or you still like that. Not knowing that it's the goodness of God that's trying to lead you to repentance. It doesn't mean you're okay. We've got to learn that, that God's allowance of something is not equal to God's approval of something. And Jesus looks at him and says, so you're betraying me with a kiss? 
You're betraying me with a kiss. Now, Judas does experience remorse, but loved ones, let me say this. Regret is not necessarily repentance. Remorse is not necessarily repentance. So he realizes his error. He goes to the priests. He wants them to take the money back. They said, we can't use this blood money. That's your business now. We, We made a deal. We kept our end of the bargain. And what you do with it's your business. And he ended up throwing the money to them, returning it. And they knew that they could not accept blood money. So they bought a field, a potter's field, for the burial of the poor. Judas went out and hanged himself. Now, one account says he hanged himself. Another account says that he fell upon rocks and his insides burst out. It's not a contradiction. Uh, It's just a very simple thing. Judas hanged himself uh, in this field, and either the rope broke or the branch broke, and after he's dead, he falls onto rocks. It disembowels him. And that was the end of Judas. Now, what do we learn from Judas? What do we take home with us as we go into this holiday season? Let me give you four things very quickly. Here's number one. It's possible to spend time in Christ's presence only to find your heart being hardened against him. I, I don't mean to point fingers or, or name names by any stretch of the imagination when I do this. I also got to say this, there's nothing wrong with sitting on the back row, okay? So that's not the point of this lesson. But I, I will never forget as an as a elementary school child, as an elementary school child, I was probably seven years old sitting there on Sunday morning listening to the pastor we didn't have children's church in those days. We had booster band. You know, just before Sunday school, all the kids came up and we were the booster band. We sang songs and had a wonderful time. Then we went to Sunday school. And the way we ended booster band every Sunday was we would sing that song, Into My Heart. Into My Heart. Come in to my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. That was our song, and our pastor would pray over us and send us to class. In fact, when I felt called to preach, that's the first job the pastor gave me. When I felt called to preach, and he was convinced I was called to preach, my first job in church was was the booster band prayer. I was 15 years old, and I'm praying over the children in booster band every Sunday. But I remembered praying that with sincerity. And I was, I, was, I was a little older when I came to a full knowledge of I want to give my heart to the Lord. But I knew I loved Jesus. I knew I prayed that prayer every week. And I was sitting there probably seven years old. And the whole back of the church, um, I grew up in a church where the children were made to come to church, you know. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You make them go to school. You make them eat when they're little. But all of a sudden, we want to be generous when it comes to church. You know, don't, I'm not, I don't want to force them to go to church. Yeah, I'm afraid they won't go when they're older. Sure they will. You force them to eat and they're eating, you know. You force them to brush their teeth, they're still brushing their teeth. Force them to go to church and you're training them up in the way they ought to go. But, but the thing to do was to get these uh, straw bottom chairs and line them up against the back wall and the guys, teenagers, they looked huge to me. They were probably uh, junior and senior high boys. Probably three dozen of them would, would, or a couple of dozen, would be leaning against, you know, have those chairs tilted back. And they would just do this, you know, while pastor was preaching. And I, I thought they were cool. I, I mean, I, I wanted to be one of them. But I will never forget the day when I looked over at them thinking, uh, boy, these guys are awesome sitting back there. It was obvious they weren't interested. It was obvious they were in the back because they wanted to be the first to leave when the pastor said amen. And I heard a still, small voice. Just this, this is one of the first times I think I heard the voice of God. I, could t- I looked at him and I said, they're not listening. And my, my thought in my little seven-year-old mind was, ooh, they're going to get in trouble. And then I heard it. I heard it. It was the most compassionate, the most drawing, the most tender voice. Steve, will you listen? Will you listen? 
And I don't know how to describe what happened. I don't think I've ever even told that to anybody except my mom. But I turned my eyes to the front and I didn't understand what the pastor was talking about. He used big words. I think he was preaching about the son of perdition. I didn't know what that meant. But something clicked in my heart. I felt the Lord tenderize my heart. Said, and, and I remember coming to this conclusion, even if I don't understand, I will listen. I will listen. And God put me on a path that um, has been the joy of my life. So understand, loved ones, it's possible to spend time in Christ's presence, but still have a hardened heart unless you surrender. And number two, here's good news. No matter how much evil arises in plots and plans, the purposes of God cannot be defeated. There are going to be times when it looks like hell wins. There are going to be times it looks like Judas' plan worked. There are going to be times, maybe it's after an election or after an offering or after a campaign or a, a religious campaign or after a missions trip. There may be times in your life that it looks like the enemy's plan is winning. Your child comes home with a hangover. Your, your husband comes home with somebody else's lipstick on his face. There are going to be times when it looks like hell is winning. But you have to, even in these darkest moments, even in the dark night of the soul called Gethsemane, you've got to understand that God is still working his plan and his purpose. In the midst of Judas' betrayal, in the midst of incredible despair, Jesus was still able to say, if there's any other way, I want it. But if not, not my will, but your will be done. How could he pray that? Because he he knew that the purposes of God cannot be defeated. Number three, never allow traffic, satanic traffic into your life. You see, you say, well, I'll do this, but I would never do that. Loved ones, when you start allowing Satan access into your life, you're opening the door for all kinds of things. Don't allow the enemy a place to land in your life. I know it's difficult. I know it's difficult. But whether you're on the internet or whether you're doing, you know, business at the office, never allow the enemy a place to land in your life. You say, well, I think I know how to handle it. No, you don't. None of us do. And that's why in John 13, 2, we need to read that verse from time to time where it says that Satan put it into Judas's heart to betray the Lord. It it wasn't there to begin with, whether he was saved or not. It wasn't there to begin with. It wasn't something that this man carried for three and a half years, but he allowed selfishness. He allowed greed. He allowed dishonesty. He allowed an offense at the way Jesus worked and the message Jesus produced. And then after allowing all of this traffic, suddenly something shows up in his heart. I can betray him. And the Bible says that the enemy put it there. Satan put it there. In fact, one of the gospels uses such strong language. It says that at the supper, the devil entered him. Here's the last thing. But for the grace of God, we could all be Judases. But for the grace of God, we could all be traitors. You say, well, pastor, what do you want us to do with this? Well, one thing you can become cynical. You can just say, nobody's a genuine believer. That's, that's a silly approach to take, and that's, that's not true. If there's something false, that by, by demand explains that there's something real. I mean, if you have a counterfeit bill, it's only counterfeit because there is a real bill. And if there are hypocrites, it's because there are those who are not hypocrites. I remember back in the late 80s when we had all the scandals with the televangelists, and um, it was just everybody was, oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Someone did a survey um, and took all the names that were associated with the scandal. And you know what they found out? 
they found out that for everyone that was living a hypocritical life, there were approximately 6 million pastors who were not. (laughs) I mean, it, it was amazing. They didn't make the news. But we have to understand that we walk in humility because if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of being a traitor ourselves. Father, it's time for us to go. I, I know that. We're, we only have a few minutes before it's our scheduled departure time. But I ask for the help of the Holy Spirit today. I ask for the grace of the Lord to come powerfully to us and speak to our lives about matters of integrity, about matters, matters of honesty, about matters of purity. Lord, do your work right now in us. You know things about us that our wives don't know. You know things about us that our husband, our children, our best friends don't know. Father, I also know there's a difference between being a hypocrite and being someone that's struggling. So I want to pray first of all for everyone who is struggling. Father, for those of us that are fighting and we want to be what you've called us to be, but there's some secret hold on our life. And and Lord, it's not that we want to be hypocrites. We just haven't found that place of victory. Father, would you wrap your arms around us now? Give us strength so that we can be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Give us victory over every sin that seems to keep a grip on us. Not every day, but every now and then we just seem to fall back into that same trap. Lord, come with the fullness of the Spirit and crowd out all of that garbage in our lives. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here, maybe they are living a hypocritical life. Maybe I don't have a clue. Maybe nobody in church has a clue. But they're leaving something alone that the Spirit of God says get rid of. It might be a habit. It might be a relationship. It might be a little compartment of their life that they think is just safely detached from everything else. By the power of the Holy Spirit, touch our lives. Shine the bright light of the Holy Spirit's purity upon it and help us see Help us see these things the way you see them. Father, there may be some here today that they're not even sure they've made Jesus Lord. They, when I was talking about we don't know if Judas was truly saved or not, they, they came to the realization, I, I don't even know if I'm saved or not. I pray before they leave that they would come to Jesus making a full surrender and abandonment of their lives to him and allow him to become the great savior and deliverer of their souls in Jesus name would you stand with me loved ones